I'm going to be in Job. So Job is one of the wisdom books. It is a, um, uh, sits there in the middle of your Old Testament. It is unknown who the author of Job is. It's probably not Job himself. Uh, it's possible that it was uh, recorded for us by Moses. That seems fairly likely that the story came down through Moses. You'll remember when Moses ran away from Egypt, um, both in the Bible and in the movie, um, he goes to his father in Midian and the land of Uz is right near there. And so this story would have been, it seems that the time frame is kind of that of the patriarchs because the, the cultural setting is very similar with Job being this man whose wealth is measured in his cattle and his family and his uh, influence in, in the area, just kind of the same way it would have been for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so in that time frame. Um, the Chaldeans are mentioned, and the Chaldeans here do not yet have cities that they occupy. They're nomadic tribes, and so that hasn't been developed. And so while the time frame is early on, uh, somewhere around that second half of Genesis, it's probably post-flood. There's an allusion to the flood that's made uh, in Job. Um, it is uh, recorded for us... We aren't sure even when the book kind of kind of arrived. It could have arrived as late as um, Solomon's time. In fact, one of the authors is that's postulated is that, uh, that possibly Solomon is who recorded Job for us. But the story itself would have come from back in those days before Moses and after Abraham. Sometime in that is when Job himself lives, and it's an interesting book. Uh, the, the whole notion of why do bad things happen to good people, um, the answer for that is in Job. In fact, it's answered in the first two chapters of Job, but you're going to look and you're going to say, well, there's a lot of other stuff in Job. And like I was talking to Ethan yesterday, I said, you know, we, we just got to get through like the first 38 chapters so we can get to the dinosaurs. So we can talk about dinosaurs because that's like the best part of Job. Um, and you, you learn all the lessons you need to know about Job, that, that Job has to teach us in the first two chapters, which is kind of interesting because um, Job never knows the first two chapters of Job. Job is completely unaware of what we're going to study this morning. We're going to get through the first two chapters and we're going to see, uh, the, we could finish, we could just say, oh, we're done. But it's kind of nice because Job and his friends have a reaction to suffering and how it interplays with being good and being bad and, and how does suffering mix with that and how do blessings mix with goodness and, and virtue and uh, those attitudes are attitudes we often have. In fact, those are the attitudes that we naturally have because we do not have the wisdom of God. Our wisdom is not and never shall be God's wisdom because we will never have on this earth the perspective that God has. And we'll never have this, this peek into the heavenly realms that we're given here in Job. In fact, I would argue that we learn more about 
Satan in these two chapters than anywhere else in the Bible. We get a really clear picture on things like how does Satan get to do the things he, do, he does, he does. How, where does his ability to afflict the saints and what all does he actually the one in charge of? What powers does he actually have? And you're going to see that he's actually fairly powerful. And do we actually have an accurate picture of the devil? All that comes from these first two chapters. It's, it's, it's amazing what's in here. It's almost as cool as Leviathan or the behemoth. It's really close. Um, so the question is, what if God is actually God? What if he's actually the one who created all things for all eternity and he is the one who is the only one who is worthy of worship and adoration and only one worthy of being pursued? And on top of that, what if the devil is also real and evil is also real? What if those things actually coexist in our situation? One of my favorite songs from, this would have been the 1990s, um, I think it's Joanne Osborne, or Joan Osborne, Joanne Osborne. Um, it was written by the, the, the band, does anyone know who the Hooters were? Great music. Okay, they're the ones who wrote this. They penned this and gave it to her to sing, and it's, it's, the name of the song is What If God Was One of Us? It's a great song. I mean, the, the theology in this song is actually pretty astounding. Um, just the lyrics of this. If God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face if you were faced with him in all of his glory? What would you ask if you had just one question? What if God was one of us? In contrast to that first verse, what if God was just one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see if seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all the prophets? Again, what if God was one of us trying to make his way home back up to heaven all alone, nobody calling on the phone except the Pope maybe in Rome? It's a, it's a really interesting, they pose some really interesting questions. What if God was actually God and had a name? Would you be willing to go into the throne room of God, look him in the face and call him by his name? And I'd say, no, absolutely not. And the song is actually making that point. In fact, if you did see him face to face, would you really want to do that? Because if you did, it would mean you would have to believe in heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all the prophets. That's what seeing and knowing who God is. And that's what Job, I think here, the book of Job gives us. It gives us a peek into who our God really is. But you need to understand when you see him for who he is, it will have a profound effect on you. If you truly accept what Job is going to tell you about the wisdom of God, it can't but change your perspective on everything else. God is not one of us. He doesn't decide 
the outcomes of where things are going to land the way we would. He doesn't look and say, this person does good, I'm going to give them good things. This person does bad, I'm going to cause bad to happen on them because really they're the ones who are ultimately in charge of what occurs in their life. It's not God at all. God actually has control over what happens in our lives ultimately regardless of what we do. There is the notion that good things are given to those who are obedient to God. You can't escape that in Scripture, and that bad things wait for those who do evil. Read Proverbs, but all of us know that the summer that we went through, when Josh took us through the Proverbs, those are overarching themes about life, but that is not, those Proverbs are, are, are kind of guidelines that are followed, but they're not strict and fast rules, because all of us have instances where we go, why? Why did this happen? What did I do? And that's what we see happening here. So what if God's wisdom is not our wisdom? Again, even the best of us, even those of us with the best theology. What if even with our best theology, we can't understand the wisdom of God? Is that possible? So the first two chapters of Job, as I said, are the the key to the book. God does have the prerogative to do all things that are within his character. And we are not God. We don't have his perspective. We can't know what he knows. And ultimately, we're going to find out that our suffering in this world, and and please don't think I'm being callous when I say this. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a picture of what's shown here. Our suffering in this world is a secondary issue to what is going on. It is secondary to what God has planned. And God's plans sometimes achieve things other than our comfort. It's all ultimately for our good. But whether or not we suffer or not is not the primary issue that concerns God, and nor should it be the primary issue that concerns us. The remaining chapters of this book are a human perspective. Those, those, the rest of the chapters after chapter 2 are pointless if you don't understand one and two. Seeing what cannot be seen in the courts of heaven allows us a perspective that helps us avoid the errors of both Job and his friends. His friends get get blasted pretty hard, and they certainly do by God, but Job is also rebuked by God for what he's going to be saying in the future. And we'll look at that with future studies, and that's important, but today... We're in chapter 1 and 2. So verses 1 through 5, there's a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were, and just imagine what it would take to actually take care of this many animals, to those of you who know animals. 7,000 sheep. Just want to point out to you that that would be somewhere producing another oh, I don't know, five, 6,000 sheep per year on top of that. As Jay can tell you, that would take a, you know, quite the processing plant to run that many animals through. This is a man with incredible wealth. I mean, this is, out, this is unbelievable wealth. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pairs of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants, 
And that man was the greatest of all the sons of the East. He's basically living as a king in the sense that we had kings during that time of Abraham. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now it happened when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and set them apart as holy. He would rise up early in the morning, offer burnt offerings according to the number of all of them. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So we have this introduction of the man named Job. Blameless, upright, fearing God, turning from evil. This marked his life. This was, does not mean he was perfect. In his own admission, he talks about sins that he had in his youth in chapter 13, verse 26, and previous sins he's committed in chapter 7, verse 21. So we can assume, based on what we know, not only from the book of Job, but from the rest of scripture, that Job is not a flawless man. He did not live without sin. So this, this perspective that God has of him being blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away evil is interesting. God gives Job this description. We're going to see God himself speak this description of Job because of the overarching qualities in this man's life, those things that that are shown. And it shows his incredible blessing in family and in wealth of what would be wealth, what would be considered wealth of that day, not only your sons and daughters, but also uh, your livestock is how you would have counted how much wealth you had versus silver, gold, stocks, bonds, the kinds of things, real estate, the things that we look at nowadays. And then we also see the, the community being very important with him. Family was obviously very important with him as, as his sons and daughters would have these feasts at each, other's, at each one of the sons' houses. And that Job was a man who knew and understood sin and knew and understood God and understood that the burnt offerings which initially, again, this kind of helps us date this because we see burnt offerings come in. Um, uh, really, the first place they're actually recorded is with um, Noah. But So again, probably sometime after Noah, burnt offerings according to the number for all of them. So he understands the importance of interceding with God and the importance of death and the importance of um, atonement for sin. So he's got a great perspective. Not only is this man who is viewed as upright, he's got this great perspective of what sin is and it's affront to God. And so an amazing man, uh, one of the men that in the community would have been viewed as being uh, a leader in the community, but he also would have been uh, all of the people that feared God would have said, this is the man I'm trying to be like. Certainly his friends, um, as we see at the end of chapter 2, are speechless when they see what happens to Job, knowing who Job is. And the, the, the um, influence that he has and the reputation that he has. Wealth and family, possessions, prosperous, happy, and again, understanding his relationship to God. And the relationship of his children to God. Verses 6 through 12, now, it was the day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh. And Satan also came among them. And Yahweh said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Then Yahweh said to Satan, have you set your heart upon my servant Job? 
For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God without cause? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed him with the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But send forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only do not send forth your hand toward him. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. We have this conversation between God and Satan. And this is, this is what should just blow your mind that we actually are privy to what happens here and the relationship as, it, as it's going forward. First of all, there's apparently the day when everybody's kind of hanging out in heaven together, that God holds court. And we see this in, a late, the, the, in chapter two, this occurs again. So this is apparently a regular occurrence that God holds court in heaven and angels are there and Satan is able to approach God and have a chat with him, which in my mind, I'm like, wait, evil can't be in the presence of God. How does this happen? This is wild. This is crazy stuff. But we have here Satan and God having a conversation. There's sin in the world, so Satan has fallen already. Satan is already... Um, from what we see in Revelation and and the description we're given of the the king of Tyre and how that lines up with Satan. Satan has already rebelled. There are angels who have come with him. And so God God addresses Satan, and that's not a small thing. This conversation is initiated by God himself. The whole idea that that Satan is there as God holds court shows that God himself is the initiator of everything that's going to flow forward here. And after, but he does draw a line that we're going to see here later in verses 11 and 12. So God initiates the conversation and asks Satan, from where did you come? Kind of simple, a simple question, but profound. Just as he asked Adam, uh, where are you? Eve, where are you? So God has every idea of where, knows exactly where Satan has been. He's, he's omnipotent. And so God is, is, Driving the question, he's going to get Satan to start talking about earth here. And Satan says, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And just, just to clarify really quick, how does Satan walk around on the earth? What does the scripture say? What's he like? A roaring lion, yeah. Is it, he's like, oh, I'm just out walking on the first stroll. That's not what he does. He walks this earth like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour especially the faithful. Satan is out there looking for who he can attack. There's only one of him, but he certainly has legions of demons that can help him with his, this task. But he himself is out roaming the earth and walking around on it. Sounds innocent enough. We know that's not the case. So then God says to Satan, have you set your heart upon my servant Job? And again, thank goodness for Job. He isn't here or Job would say No. Don't set your heart on the Job guy. Leave him alone. He's fine. He's done. He's not hurting anybody. Don't bring me up to Satan. But God does that. Have you set your heart upon my my servant Job? Again, prowling about like a roaring lion. And God says, has your heart, knowing Satan is this roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So when he says, have you set your heart on my servant Job? This isn't, hey, have you ever thought about Job? Just, you know, what a great guy he is. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, 
Have you set your heart, your heart that looks for destruction of my faithful? Has it ever come across in your, in your strolling on the earth? Have you seen this man? Have you thought about him as one to attack? Have you thought about the fact that here is a man who is faithful to me beyond all others on the earth? A blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. God sets up the faithfulness of Job and says, Satan, have you ever targeted him? Have you ever thought about going after him? Satan should have known immediately this is not going to end well for Satan. Satan, whatever he's got planned, has, is going to fail here. But Satan, being Satan and, and being proud, is going to fall for it. It's an interesting the interesting thing here, again, God is initiating this, this interaction between Satan and Job, and Satan answers God and says, does Job fear God without cause? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has, everything on every side? You've made it so that everything is blessed that happens to him. He's a good guy, and you reward his goodness, and uh, you keep him from having anything bad happen to him. So, of course, he thinks you're awesome, God. Of course, he's a faithful person. But if you do something to him, now again, this is Satan telling God, hey God, why don't you hurt him and see what happens? I think Satan here is tempting God. He speaks the truth. God has done these things. He's blessed him and put a hedge about him. He says, yeah, God, you've done all these things, but now you go out and you, you hurt him. You hurt him and see what happens. He'll curse you to your face. And God doesn't fall for it. God doesn't say, okay, I'm going to do all these bad things to him. He says, no. Okay, Satan, if you think that's why, why he has faith in me, you may, you, Satan, may go and you may tempt him. I will allow you to tempt him. We have the story of Peter where he's going to deny Christ and, and Satan asks permission to sift Peter like wheat. It's quite a picture we're given there of temptation and, and Christ makes it clear that there's a limit to what he's going to allow Satan to do, even to Peter in his failing. But here we see again, God says, all that he has is in your hand, only do not send forth your hand toward him. He says, you can do this, but this is where I limit. And this is important for us. God limits what Satan can actually do. And this hard time that's about to befall Job is not outside of the control and purview of God. And God himself, even though it is going to be brought about by the devil, by Satan, even though that's who's going to cause it all to happen, was ultimately allowed by and brought up by and planned by our Savior, which should give us comfort. It should also be terrifying that that's the God that we serve, that this is what he does. that he allows these things. So, jump down in my notes here. So we have a perspective then of Satan that I think is a little bit flawed because now we see what Satan is actually capable of doing. 
So Satan then is released by God to go ahead and, and carry out what his plan is that God is, has, has, he's initiated this interaction. Satan is now going to go carry out this plan to see whether or not he can break God's faithful servant. In verse 13, now it happened on that, that on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother, the firstborn, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabians fell upon them and took them. They also struck down the young men with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. This one was still speaking. Another, came, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the young men and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans set up three companies and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the young men with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother, the firstborn. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and touched the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshiped. We'll hold off there. Men don't believe in a devil now as their fathers used to do. They reject one creed because it's old for another because it's new. There's not a print of his cloven hoof nor a fiery dart from his bow to be found in the earth or air today. At least they declare it so. But who is it that mixes the fatal draft that palsies heart and brain or loads the briar of each passing year with its hundred thousand slain? But who blights the bloom of the land today with the fiery breath of hell? If it isn't the devil that does the work, who does it? Won't somebody tell? The dogs, the steps of the trolling, or who dogs the steps of the toiling saint? Who spreads the net for his feast? Who sows the tares in the world's broad field where the Savior sows his wheat? If the devil is voted not to be, is the verdict therefore true? Someone is surely doing the work the devil was thought to do. They may say the devil has never lived. They may say the devil is gone. But simple people would like to know who carries the business on. In our day and age, we tend to remove ourselves from spiritualizing things probably to our own detriment because the devil is real and he has, he has power and he has things that he can actually accomplish within what God allows. And he is certainly more potent than I think we give him credit for. Just look at what he, what he accomplishes here and understand that these things are all accomplished on the same day and not only the same day, but the day when they gather at the oldest son's house. So the biggest of all the feasts for the family Satan prepares all of these things and de demonstrates his power all at once. So you have the oxen plowing and the Sabians fall upon them. Well, to do that, he's, Satan prepares the Sabians and puts into their heart their desire in the, uh, for the possessions of Job and helps them understand uh, that to take this stuff, they're going to have to kill a bunch of people. So this murderous, thieving group of people are set into action by Satan himself. 
And then we have this fire from God. Now, is this lightning? Is this actual fire coming down from God? I don't know. But it isn't. It's the fire of God is the description of it. But we know from man's perspective, that's what it looks like. It's the fire of God coming down from heaven. But we know based on earlier in the chapter, this is the devil who is doing this. The devil calls down fire that burns up sheep and young men and consumes them. Anybody know the devil could do that? Without Job, I don't think we would. And I think we would give the devil a little bit uh, less credit than he deserves. He has incredible power that he uses here. Then he calls up three companies of the Chaldeans. He actually has control over them as well to come and again kill people and raid the camels, steal what is not theirs. And then finally... And this should blow your mind knowing as you picture Jesus in the boat as there's a storm that comes and Jesus calms and stills the waves. Here we see the devil producing a great wind from across the wilderness, touching the four corners of the house with such force that it falls and kills all of the young people in the house. So on one hand, we're fearful of God and for who he is, for he is overarching all of this. He is is controlling this, but it's the devil who actually is the one who performs these acts. I don't know about you, but this was not the devil that, that before I started studying Job, the devil that I had in mind. And the devil I had in mind was a lion, this figurative lion walking about roaring, Uh, That's going to devour me. Turns out that's probably a nicer way to picture the devil than what we see here. The ferocity of who he is. It's a ferocious evil lacking any compassion, inflicting as much pain as possible in the shortest period of time to crush the faithful of God. There is no flinching on the devil's part. There is no considering, well, um, I don't need to go quite that far. He's like, I'm going all in here. Everything I can do, I'm pulling everything out and I'm getting this guy. I'm going to show God. And in your heart, you're going, God knew this was what was going to happen. He knew and understood what he was unleashing, what he was allowing to be unleashed on Job with that initial conversation that God himself brought up, and it should make you tremble. But do remember your wisdom is not God's wisdom. So God allows Satan, who is again ferociously evil, lacking compassion, to inflict this upon his faithful servant. And then we see this, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, And fell on the ground and worshipped. How I do not know. Is my faith even close to that? I don't. I don't. I don't think it is. Not on my own power. And he said naked I have come into my mother's womb. And naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he give offense to God. Part of my mind says Job kind of categorized this as all being material 
things that have been taken away, things that he gained in this life and things that he lost in this life. And that sometimes was, or somehow was a salve to his soul that this was not as severe. He lost all his children in this. He certainly lost servants that he had known. Even beyond the material, here he brings up the material things and and in the midst of his sorrow and in the midst, midst of his mourning, he worships God. The shriek of indignation from the devil when that happened was probably not something we and our ears could have withstood. When the devil released everything he had at Job at one time to crush him and to have Job turn around and worship God must have been the worst defeat that Satan had had up to this point in history, I'm going to say, in dealing with one person. It must have just been in his mind, there is no way this has happened. He must have just been furious with what had just taken place. And now we kind of see why it is God initiated this. God not only wanted to show the devil that his faithful servant had a faith that was beyond anything that he had possession-wise, even his own children, but also that ultimately God is the one who should be worshipped. And Satan had to realize that when he sees in this man, this, this frail human, the ability to turn to God and worship him when Job understood that it was God that allows these things to be taken away. Job doesn't respond here, God gave and the devil took it away, or God gave and chance allowed it to go, or the weather took it, or those darn Chaldeans and the Sabians. He actually attributes this in a right manner, not knowing what just took place up in heaven, to God himself. God gave, God is taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all of this, Job did not sin nor give his offense to God. Now the book could end there and we'd be like, okay, now I know when bad things happen to me, I still need to give God credit for everything he's given me and understand that he has the, he has the prerogative to take it away. But the book doesn't stop there and Satan didn't stop there. And God doesn't allow Satan to stop there. It is important to note that God here doesn't tempt Job beyond Job's ability to handle it. He did put a stop on the devil and we can postulate why, but but I think that's certainly part of it because we're going to see him allowed to be tested further and that testing is going to even be worse than the initial testing. It's going to be not worse, it's going to be additional too and the sum of it will be worse than the initial. We know that God does not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 states that and I say allows us to be tempted. He's not the, God does not tempt us but he does allow us to be tempted and that's what's occurred here. And there's, um, I'll, I'll, I'll enter the world of Gordon here for a little bit for sports analogy. So, Gordon, you can let me know how I do. So, 
One of the most frustrating things for me, and Elise can attest to this, she'll ask me what my day's gonna be like, and I'll say, I've got a terrible ride today. The worst, and so I have specific rides I've gotta to do to train for racing. And there's, there's rides that I know are going to be terrible, and it's gonna be a really difficult thing. And one of the most difficult things about it is I know I can do it. But I also look at it and I say, it's gonna hurt and it's going to be really hard, and I'm going to be exhausted when I'm done, but I know I'm capable of doing it. And the temptation is to give in, but I'm, you know, when you're halfway, when you're not halfway through it, and you're like, I, I don't know that I can do this. But I know based on the science and the data that I've accumulated over the last two years, my body can actually do this, and that does not make it easier by any stretch of the, of the imagination, because if I couldn't do it, then I could just give up at any time. But knowing because I've done it before and I've done this much work and so this much is uh, my body should have gotten stronger or better or the heart's better and all these things, all these reasons scientifically I should be able to do it. I have to just push through it and it's just my body telling me to stop. But in reality, I have to keep going. And that is how athletes get better. They, they, push themselves a little bit further. They build up endurance and push themselves a little bit further, knowing that if they suffer for a little while and if there's pain for a little while, they're going to be able to be stronger the next time they go out. And when they do finally compete, all those things will add up. But the other thing that if you ask an athlete about training and you ask a coach, really the most important thing you do is that you're consistent in your workouts. You don't just do this three days this week, one day next week, and then you take the next week off because you had other stuff to do and come back and, and then, oh my gosh, you're two weeks away from the race and now you're going to try and accomplish everything. No, it's something that you build up over time. And if we jump back to the beginning of, of uh, the chapter where we have this picture of Job and the regular feasting of his family is also accompanied by his regular interceding for them through sacrifice, through atonement, with God. Job has built up the endurance to actually accomplish this first thing that he did in giving God the glory and in worshiping God. But that test is not done. That's the first test. And I think God gave him this and he strengthened him because there is a bigger test coming. And that's another thing for us to, to look at is the fact that, yay, I made it through this test. Yay, I've done this. I've accomplished this thing. God told me he's not going to tempt me beyond it. So I knew I could do it, but it wasn't easy and I got through it. Now I'm stronger. Well, why did God get you stronger? Well, there's a decent chance that he got you stronger because there's more coming. Now you're ready for the next one. You couldn't have accomplished it before, but now God says you're ready for the next one. Because chapter two, God initiates this again. Chapter two, verse one, again, it was the day that the sons of God come to stand before Yahweh and Satan also came among them to stand himself before Yahweh and Yahweh said to Satan, where do you come from? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. He's out being a roaring lion again. And Yahweh said to Satan, have you set your heart upon my servant Job? Isn't that terrible? I mean, in your heart, you're like, no, don't, don't do it again. For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity. So you incited me against him to swallow him up in vain. I do like that God puts the screws to Satan here. 
He pressures Satan. He says, you know what, Satan? You thought you knew Job and you thought you knew his faith and you didn't. True faith in God withstood your attack. You lost. So God does his little victory dance. God gets in Satan's face and he would have been flagged for it, but gets in Satan's face and tells him, look, you tried, you failed. Have you set your heart on him again? Do you want to try to go again? And here, we, it's made perfectly clear as we progress here, Job is later going to argue, I have done nothing to deserve this to his friends. And here we see, certainly his friends wouldn't know that. They wouldn't know the heart of Job and they wouldn't know if there's some secret sin. But Job knows and here God acknowledges he maintained his integrity. Job does not deserve what just happened to him. If that was a one-to-one transaction of suffering to good, or good gets blessing, evil gets suffering, Job did not just deserve that. But this book is teaching us that's not entirely how things work in the economy of God. But basically he says, Satan, you failed. And you failed really bad. So Satan, and you can imagine he doesn't have much patience and he doesn't have the insight of God and, and he probably has problems with his anger. Here says, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. If you let me actually cause this man pain, that's where you held back, God. It's your, you, yeah, you, this wasn't a real test. Bologna wasn't a real test. However, you send forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you in your face. Again, I think there's a temptation to God to be the one who causes this to Job. God says, no, Satan. Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So you can't kill him, but you can cause him pain. So Satan goes out from the presence of Yahweh and struck Job with terrible boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. And just, just again, point out here the power that Satan actually has. He had the power to go to Job and put boils all over his body so that he has this terrible pain everywhere. He probably doesn't smell good. There's disfigurement that's involved. And there's, just so you're aware, when you take these pots and you great boil. You have a blister is kind of like that, but boils are more. Just think more icky, sticky stuff with boils. And the skin looks terrible and it's awful. And, and these are, these are, the skin is actually basically dying enough that if you take a, a blunt object that's got a fairly crisp edge, you can, you can just tear the, the lining of the skin right off. It's nasty. Okay, let's move on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So that's, that's what Satan had the power to do to Job. He could actually do that to him. And Job, I don't blame him. Go sit in some ashes. Part of that is mourning, I think. But part of it is, what else are you going to do? Ashes actually would sound pretty good in this state. Kind of dries things off and, and nothing sharp or hard is touching you. Now I'm done. Just so you're, okay. What about the bad breath and the stomach caving in part? Oh, bad breath and stomach caving in. 
what? All right. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the wickedly foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? In all this, Job did not sin, sin with his lips. So we see Satan takes another run at Job. God gives us some insight as to why he's doing this. It's, it's not a punishment of, of Job, who even through the second testing by Satan is still considered blameless and upright. Again, he's done nothing to deserve this. God knows the faith of his saints and what they can bear. Satan wants to go a step further here and and to touch him in such a way to make him actually feel the pain of physical torment. But even that, he's incapable of turning, turning Job. Now, verse 9 is the, the fulcrum on which the book turns. Verse 9, between 8 and 9, we have heavenly perspective of what happens to Job. And now we turn to earthly perspective of what's happened to Job. And the first person that's introduced, that's not Job, in this play, in this tragedy, is his wife, And his wife says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Do you still believe that you are so flawless that this shouldn't happen to you? Or do you still hold fast to the fact that that you're going to keep being this good and godly man, even though all these terrible things have happened? And her statement can be read one of two ways. It could be read, curse God and die. Just, just do something so terrible that you do deserve death and then you're done. You can be no more of this misery because right now you're in, miserable, you're in a miserable state and you've already been through the loss of all your possessions and all your family except for your glorious wife. Just die. Here's a great way out. Or it's, it's even harsher than that. Curse God, he's the one who's done all this to you and just die like the dog that you are. Just be done. This integrity thing is not worth it. And I think we would be wrong if we thought, because I read this part with the first part of the chapter, we'd be wrong to think that this was not within the plan of Satan himself. Did Satan tempt the wife to make these comments and, and, or, or give her some thoughts or ideas to actually do this, to, to, to punish Job even more? I think there's probably a, a combination of those things, but this certainly made this second test much, much more difficult. Those of you who are married, you, can't, you, can, you can Imagine the worst thing that one of you has been through. What if the other one said, just curse God and die? Just forget this. This this God of yours isn't worth it. And just die. But she apparently knows that he is holding on to God and, and continues to worship God. And she understands who this man is and attacks that. That point of integrity. 
And his response to her is, is a rebuke. It's, it's interesting that he says, you speak as one of the wickedly foolish women speak rather than saying, you are a wickedly foolish woman. There's even grace to his wife in this situation. You speak as one of the wickedly foolish speaks and, and tries to teach and show her that we shall indeed accept good from God should we not accept calamity as well. Now, 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 understand this woman just lost all of her children and all of her possessions as well. She went through the first trial with Job. It affected her as well in, in pretty much the same way. She has lost everything as Job has lost everything. And now as she sees her husband, who she has raised 10 children with, in abject misery, she herself is overwhelmed. Certainly we would say her faith is not the faith of Job, based on her response here, but uh, I think giving her grace is something that we should all be willing to do because who knows, but we wouldn't do the same. Certainly without God's help, we would. So not only in the first instance can God bless you and take away blessing, but he also has the ability to give you comfort just as much as he can give you pain. Those things are within the realm of what God is capable of doing. And Job understands that. And Job, again, has an insight that his friends aren't going to have when they arrive because Job knows that he's done nothing to deserve these things. And all he can say is, I guess God gives me these things. He can take them away. And I guess since God can bring good things, I give him the credit for the good that he brings in, his, in my life. I have to accept the bad that comes into my life as being according to his plan as well. A very humble attitude. Thus far, Job is doing well. But as we progress, we'll even start looking at where his, his thoughts and ideas of, of who God is and how this whole system works, how the economy of God, how it works, how, how he himself has some things that he's got to work on. No dinosaurs this week, though. Sorry about that, for those of you who are hoping dinosaurs. Questions. we got five minutes. So questions about the text or about personal suffering or... Absolutely. He's a, he's a one-woman man. Yeah, um, much. I always kind of think of the, and I don't like to, um, the uh, qualifications to be an elder. It's Job. Oh, and by the way, the qualifications to be an elder are the expectations of all saints that you be that type of person. Um, that's not some special calling that each of us has, just like each of us aren't called beyond that. But yes, he even shows integrity in his married life. Other comments or questions? Is everyone okay with the fact that Satan can call down fire and 
cause you to have boils all over your body, should God allow it. That, that, that still blows my mind that he has that much power and control. And that God keeps those things hemmed in. You take it a step back. Is everyone okay with the fact that God allows those things to happen? Allows that there's a Satan, that there's a devil who can do these things and sets it up that those things do. Not as his agent, but certainly as the means by which we are we experience some of these things that are terrible. I mean, to me, that just adds an extra level of confidence in his sovereignty because he, he knows how you're going to pull through it or not. And yeah. And he's, he's like, like he's said Corinthians, right? Here's the temptation. You, this is what you're capable of. I'm proving this to you. Yeah. So how do you get through life if you don't think God's sovereign? I'm asking for any of you who thinks that God's not sovereign over everything, how? How do you survive? How do you, if God is just mostly sovereign, how do you get through? I don't understand. I, I truly don't. I don't know how you could be in Job's position and say, you know what? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. He gives blessing, he gives calamity. We have to accept both from his hand. Without belief and understanding of the sovereignty of God, I think it'd be terrifying to be a human being in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So there is some benefit to us, as I said, where God is training and allowing these things, bad things to happen in your life for the benefit of you yourself and your growth as well. Um, our, our, my famous, our favorite verses in Amos is, does calamity befall a city and the Lord not cause it? How many times do we give credit for bad things that happen in this world being actually judgment from God or um, Satan himself causing it? The mass confusion and hysteria in this country and the inability to know what truth is. I'm a doctor and I don't like how... I have a hard time figuring out what's true and what's not. I can't imagine what you guys go through. Um, but you're going to tell me that confusion isn't one, a curse from God, and two, that Satan's behind it, not behind it? There's no way. And we as believers need to understand that there is a spiritual realm that we should be aware of and we should not faint from talking about. I, I'm always afraid that someone will think I'm a Pentecostal from Arkansas. I'm not. <laughs> I have a patient who's a, who's a pastor, uh, who's BJ Justice down in Bellevue, and he wears all black. And I love his name. His name is he's, he's Reverend Justice, but he's a Pentecostal from Arkansas. Um, and we have these conversations about things like pandemics and stuff. And I'm like, is there any reason to think we're not under judgment from God? 
Or is there any reason to think that all the confusion and everything that we struggle with now that causes us so much fear or causes the, our neighbors, our unbelieving neighbors, so much fear and watching them act out of fear, which is a stupid way to make any decision, um, except in the immediate context, like within a three to four second time frame. Stupid reason to make any kind of decision. Is there any reason to believe that isn't the devil causing it? I don't, I don't, I think that's an easy thing for the devil to do based on what we just read that he does do. So just be aware of those things and be willing to admit that they are there. And also understand we don't know who's behind it and how it's working, but that is, we certainly don't want to say that, oh no, this isn't, this isn't judgment from God or this isn't caused by the devil himself. I think wars, things along those lines are famine, where, where people make selfish decisions that kill thousands of people. Um, those things are, I think, the author is the devil and he works and tries to do those things. He loves causing misery and anguish. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for the book of Job that for some reason you deemed us worthy to know what's going on in heaven. To know this instance of in time when you brought around about the suffering of Job. And we look at it, Lord, and we say, well, this is a huge blessing for us, Lord, but let's not remove it from the immediate context and what Job himself went through. Lord, we give you praise for the faithfulness of Job, for we know that all faith comes from you and that without you and your work in our hearts without the Spirit's work, we ourselves, Lord, would be without faith and, and we would be the most worthy people to be despised. But because of you and your Spirit in us, because of the work of your Son, Lord, that, that we can stand rightly before you. And when the devil does come before you and accuses us of sin and, and where we fail, uh, your Son, the Savior, steps up and says, I paid it. Whatever you charge them with, even if so, I've paid it. And Lord, not only we rest in your sovereignty, but we rest, Lord, in your salvation, that through your Son we can know you and rest in you and know that even sins that we commit as believers on multiple occasions as we strive to improve our training and become more faithful and desire you more, as you put those desires in our hearts, Lord, we just thank you that you... Uh, forgive and that the work of your son was complete and, and perfect for even those things that we do. Lord, it just gives us one more reason to turn to you to worship. So as we do that this morning, Lord, I pray that our hearts will remember the work that you did, even in this situation with Job, that ultimately, Lord, these things brought you glory and showed Satan that you triumph over him through the faith that you give, Lord. And we Focus on that and enjoy that this morning with one another. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.